Welcome back, everyone, to Art Moves, the podcast. This is episode 11, and I am Dr. Regina Newhan, and my co-host, as always, is Major Dwight Smith. Welcome, Dwight. What's happening, everybody? How you doing? Dr. Newhan in the house with episode yes. 11. It's been a moment. Been a moment. It has, and we're so glad to be back. You know, and I just want to start this episode by setting a scene here. When I attended an Open Studios event at Charlotte Street here in Kansas City some time ago, I, of course, saw studios filled with fantastic art creations. But then I walked into the studio of another artist, and I was hit with the equivalent of a gut punch, really. You know, hanging from the ceiling was his massive wind chime series. These huge-scale suspended wood cutouts of the silhouette of tender young black male profiles with the neck weighted down by chains and other paraphernalia. And these symbols of repression were so poignantly and elegantly presented that I felt temporarily immobilized. They were just so moving and conveyed so much in their simplicity. I admired the artists who could evoke such instant emotion in the observer with these beautifully constructed artworks. And that artist is our guest today, Kevin Demery. Welcome, Kevin Demery, interdisciplinary artist and educator. We're just so happy to have you with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. And Kevin is from California originally and earned his MFA, Master's of Fine Art in Chicago, and is currently a Charlotte Street studio resident. And he's also a visiting assistant professor at the Kansas City Art Institute. So uh, you are in the Foundations Department, I believe. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And could you explain to our listeners what Foundations means? Uh, yeah, it is a year-long interdisciplinary experience for first-year students. Kansas City Art Institute, as far as I know, is the first college for undergraduate art in America that did that. Is that right? Um, yeah, I mean, they both have the Bauhaus model. And so the, the idea is that unique to KCAI and perhaps just art and design fields in general. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it was started in the 70s. And it was really just this idea of trying to ground artists across disciplines in a similar pedagogical framework. And now, you know, almost every art school in some capacity does some version of this. But you can really see how the genesis was here. And there's a lot of special elements to it. So yeah, I'm very fortunate to be there. Yeah, I did not realize that. Did you know that, Dwight? I did not know that. But you know, that's why we have this show. That's why we have this platform to learn from great people like Kevin. Kevin, I got a question for you just for being a black guy from the Bay Area. Yeah. What is your take on the Midwest art vibe? I mean, you know, it's a, you know, I know you were in Chicago, so you had a double dose of the Midwest before you came down here. So what's it like? What's it like for you after being here a little while? You know, I think all regions when it comes to visual art have their, you know, unique nuances. And I think that the Midwest is a space that has not been inflated by such a, a massive documented history. And what I mean by that is that you know, being a West Coast artist originally, there's a lot that pulls you to L.A. There's a yeah. lot that pulls you to specific locales and histories. And I can imagine that New Yorkers feel the same yeah. and people who generally are in the Northeast. Uh, but I think there's something kind of interesting about Midwest art history, whereas it's that it's it's very rich. It's just that you have to really dig for it, particularly in the way they teach art in school now. And so it kind of lets people chart their own path in some way that I see more unique, in my opinion, mm -hmm. I think more unique expressions because 
it's not always about uh, immediate commercial success. Interesting. Well, now I'm just curious, I'd like to really have you tell us about your art, and then I'd like to delve into your teaching goals and experience. But for the listeners today, how would you describe your own art? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a big question. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, because it's, it's not just a simple, straightforward path there. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, well, first I'll say thank you for the way you describe wind chimes. I feel like that sets the stage for what I'd want people to at least be able to imagine. A, a lot of the work I make is really just, it's it's about remembering. It's about thinking about history and how it uh, is really interwoven into everything mm-hmm. that is around us. But it's not so literal in that pursuit. So a lot of what I make, I work across many disciplines. But sculpture is where I really have grounded myself. Didn't go to school for sculpture. I have two painting degrees. You have um, two painting degrees? Yeah, wow. I, I went to school for painting. Wow, interesting. Yeah, I didn't go to school for sculpture. Yeah, I should have. Well, <laughs> you, you've excelled despite, so great. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. But yeah, so I work across multiple disciplines, and one of the ways I like to think about it is thinking about childhood, thinking about Black history, thinking about America by and large. And so some of the different expressions I've done is like the Wind Chime series, but I have a puzzle series where I create these puzzles that are like baby toys Mm -hmm. and then usually the word i have one piece that says lynched in the baby toys and they i pulled out the word deny from that yeah and i'm working on a whole series i have several of Mm -hmm. those kite that i showed last summer that really work in that vein so it's those were so clever i saw some photos of those works and it was really just ingenious how you could create this concept that you're trying to get across with just a few simple plays on placement of letters, uh, as you say, in a child's toy. It was really impressive. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I, I really believe if you can boil it down and make it simple enough for most people to be able to digest quickly, mm-hmm. then you are going to permeate some element of their consciousness. It, bro, you know? it's like you made a, a sociology infographic. Like some, you show up to the mall and it's like, you are here, but you did it for like racism and, and class structure yeah. and everything. Like, you know, full disclosure, everybody, I got a couple of, of pieces that I'm working on. I'm getting in the collection with Kevin and, and oh, know, good. I love your imagery. It is so striking for one, you know, the Egyptian it's word, striking. I believe it, it's ka. And I don't know how to express that other than your sculptures have, you know, a feeling an essence to them. You know, some of them are really solemn, but always very poignant and always, you know, just out there with the message of history and remembrance. I mean, like, oh. when I walked into your studio, I was shook. I felt it. I was like, you know, it, oh. it, it grabbed me, you know? So I was like, yeah, I already know. We got to get some of these. So, you know, the ability to capture that is when I see that in an artist, you know, I'm instantly attracted. You know, I'm like, whoa, these are hot. I mean, the energy that you are kicking out is strong. So, you know, just knowing that, you know, you're a painter and you're just floating amid these disciplines, but still able to extract that kind of essence is beautiful, is beautiful indeed. So I got to give you a shout out on that from the collection. As a teacher, how do you try to impart that to students, especially in the foundation department, because you got a magic, brother. That's a magic to be able to do that. Mm, so thanks. how do you impart that, give that gift to your students? What would you tell them? Hey, this is how you capture this. 
I mean, first, thank you. I mean, I always try to teach gratitude too. I mean, anytime somebody compliments your work, that means they, you know, and I don't even say compliment, but just uh, admires any aspect of what you do. That means that you've uh, touched someone, you've done something. And, you know, with us as artists, it's a long pathway. We're not all going to end in the same place. So I just want to acknowledge that, that, you know, irregardless of if I get to have all the things we seek, that meant a lot to hear that from both of you. But uh, yeah, in terms of imparting that to students, so I talk to them a lot about thinking. I say that the way you think informs everything that you do. I saw that growing up in a place of such political and economic inertia, right? I mean, you know, the Bay Area, but for those who don't, you know, I grew up in Oakland in the tail end of the early 2000s, right? And, you know, that was a place that at one point had a similar murder rate to Chicago, Southside Chicago, which I lived in as well, right? I got to live there as well. So there's something to be said about how you think is going to inform what is around you. And uh, so I have this project I have them do. I'm actually starting it on Monday with a new batch of students where I have them all do 100 drawings in two weeks. Wow. And the 100 drawings. Yeah, it's it's about that. (laughs) I give them a full prompt list and it's broke up into threes. Good chunk of it is technique where I'm just showing them hard skills you know, how to do perspective, how to do subtractive drawing, blind contour, all that stuff. But then there's a section that's called conceptualization. And I tell them things like, you know, draw a memory, draw something that you're afraid of, draw something that belongs in the sky, but isn't clouds. You know, they become like riddles. Yeah. And most of the time there's always a beginning. There's always at least a few people who are frustrated when I give them things like that. What exactly do you mean? And I say, well, that's for you to determine. Yeah. Right. But that ultimately... You have this instrument, which, you know, a lot of them can come in right away and they might be better draft people than me. Yeah. Right. But regardless of if you're that strong of a draft person, I always tell them, like, really how you wield your instrument is going to determine your effect upon people. It's not that you can draw, paint, sculpt, whatever. It's that how you wield that tool and what ultimately is the message behind it will, will leave your legacy. So that's what I tell them from the beginning. And I tell them. You're going to be thinking just as much as you're going to be making. Oh, it's wonderful. See, you, you had the perfect Mandalorian segue there. That's why Din Djarin couldn't wield the dark sword because he didn't know how to do it. <laughs> the teacher is dropping not... knowledge here. Kim, yes. I, I love it. I love it. Tell us about your experience at Charlotte Street. You know, Charlotte Street is out here grabbing gems, yes. pulling in some great people. Tell us how you got connected to Charlotte Street because that's kind of how I met you. Yeah, it was funny. I almost didn't apply, which I'm very fortunate I did. Because when I dropped in, you know, it's we're not accustomed where I'm from to such a long residency. Because this one's two years, right? It's two years. Yeah. Studios Inc. is three. Yeah. So it's really a gift. And it's like, you know, for me, when I got here, I wasn't eligible because they had just closed up. Uh, so I was like, well, I'm going to be here. And I'm no longer a visiting professor. I'm, I'm just full time now. Oh. But I was. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I was a visiting professor through a fellowship program that's ended but that's a two-year program i did that now i'm there full time fellowship name? But the, oh so it's called the acat postgraduate okay. teaching fellowship okay. nice. it's just for high performing graduates of color you get up to three years after your graduate degree to be nominated and potentially get placed as a full-time professor at a college nice. awesome professional development knowledge right there folks listen up And Kevin, you know, for the listeners, how do you find out about residencies and how do you go about trying to apply for them? 
if someone is out there and interested in doing such, what would you tell them? So, you know, it's really good to see what the ecology of your environment in terms of arts and, you know, arts professional development is in your given city, because there's always local opportunities and then what we call national or international opportunities, right? Most artists in America right now, um, if you're engaging in international opportunities, that's going to slowly pull you away where you probably become more fixated in those communities. I mean, if you go to Berlin for a couple of years, you're going to be in Berlin, you know? So people usually do those opportunities if they're really fixed on leaving and getting a different experience, right? Or if they, you know, maybe came from another place and then decide to maybe diversify that experience further. But when it comes to national opportunities, those are things like so many people know about the Whitney Independent Studio Program. Mm-hmm. Especially if you go through these kind of more traditional academic spaces like college. But your local opportunities, you have to usually be there to know. I never heard of Charlotte Street or Studio Zinc. It's probably, I would argue, they're probably the longest running residencies in the country because I never saw anything that was more than a year. Um, even the Studio Museum in Harlem doesn't go longer than a year, right? Um, and they probably have maybe double or triple the resources to do it. Yeah. Um, so I, first thing I would tell anybody, you want to immediately say artist residencies in your space, artist opportunities in your space, because Kansas City is robust with them. But most people aren't looking at this city unless they intend to come here to live. And that was the same case for me. And then how Charlotte Street's been is phenomenal. I mean, the kind of access and opportunity, meeting wonderful people like Dwight, just all of those things, it's just not possible, right? Without having gone through that. So I think in some way, shape, or form, most artists, not all, but most from this this region will interact with those two residencies. And that's a really beautiful thing. Were there some other thoughts you wanted to share about Charlotte Street? Well, yeah, it's it's been good. I mean, I'll yeah. say that. It's some of the people I've been able to meet. I even got to meet the Whitney National Committee there. Uh-huh. Wow. Well, I mean, so, the, some of you your know. peers up in there walking through those studios uh, at any given time is like, you know, for a collector, for just an arts fan, you know, and I yeah, walk through those studios, yeah. I'm like, whoa, I walked through there. Yeah, some of the great art that is continually coming out of the Charlotte Street program and the Studio Sync program. Like you said, these are some great programs. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's kind of what our, our mantra is here at Art Moses to promote the Midwest, promote all the great things that are happening here because we do have some excellent programs, you know, and being Absolutely. able to stabilize for two to three years and then having talent like you, because, you know, it comes full circle. First, you're at the residency or maybe you're at the school, but then you jump into the residency, but you have time to do it. So, you know, that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Definitely. Kevin, did Kansas City come on your radar only because of this residency opportunity, or did you have other ties here in the city? Yeah, it's a really interesting thing that happened. It was kind of a two-pronged thing. Uh, the very first thing that happened is I was doing my first residency called the Kala Art Institute. It's out in the Bay Area. Berkeley. It's an old Heinz ketchup factory. Yeah, you know That's that. Berkeley. Space. Berkeley yeah. in the house. What up? <laughs> and I was my very first artist residency, and uh, I met some people there who went to the Kansas City Art Institute, and they spoke so highly of it. And they were very creative people. I remember that. They struck me as people who weren't immediately bound by certain restrictions that you typically can put on yourself as an artist. 
Uh, so I remember just anecdotally saying, I'd love to teach there one day. If I could meet young minds like that, I'd love to teach there. Then the place where I did my very first wind chimes was the Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts. I was a resident up in, up there in back in, in Omaha, Nebraska. Yeah, that was, that was a while ago. I know I was in my mid-20s. So I, I met a professor there. Her name is Tanya Hartman. Hopefully she can hear this. And Tanya was the chair of painting at KU. And she tried to work to get me out here in this residency called the Hashinger Hall Residency. And I was a finalist. I think it was between me and another guy. I just didn't land it. Um, so the Kansas, Missouri area had been on my radar and specifically KCAI for a while. So when the opportunity came up, I actually had the opportunity to go to Parsons in New York. Wow. Yeah. I was offered a full-time job there as well. So I had Kansas City Art Institute, Parsons, and they, that was the decision I had to make. Thank you for making the good choice. Thank you. <laughs> right. <laughs> we win. Um, that's a victory all day. <laughs> I just knew, I said, you know, I, I took some time. I really meditated on it. A lot of people told me go to New York, probably because that's just, again, those histories, right? Sure. But I said, I think that all spaces have these moments. And they're always going to be wonderful spaces for art. I think looking at LA, if you look at, I don't know if you're all familiar with the book, South of Pico. So phenomenal book written, oh, her name is Kelly something. I'll remember and tell you guys the book, but it's called South of Pico. And it's all about kind of the genesis of visual arts, particularly black visual arts in LA in the 1960s and 70s. So she's covering David Hammond's, uh, oh, I almost said Sangha Ngudi, Sangha Ngudi, who did these beautiful stocking pieces. She covered a lot of different interesting artists from that time, but there's some, there was something special happening at that time, right? That we chronicle now. Same with New York 80s, right? Like New York in the 80s and even how people still talk about the Bauhaus today or as, you know, mid 20th century over there in Germany, right? Mm -hmm. And other things like that. So I just think there's something special happening in the Midwest right now. I could feel it. I could see it. I said, this is going to be a place that I think artists would want to have been had they known when we look back, right, yeah. at this time. And so I said, this is where I need to be. Kelly Jones, was that the name? Kelly Jones. Yes. Kelly Jones, yes. yes. Kelly Jones. Well, artists, you, you yeah. heard it from the good professor himself. This is where you want to be. Kansas City, for sure. Art moves in the house talking with Kevin Demery. Kevin, I got to ask you a question. Um, tell me about the energy you get from the students because, you know, you're, you know, I, I've taught students before. I've done ROTC. You know, I was an APMS assistant professor of military science. And, you know, I got invigorated after that tour of duty with the kids. You know, it was like, okay, now I'm ready to really do my job. What's it like being mm -hmm. in the trenches with the kids all the time? Uh. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's inspiring because you understand you're a part of a continuum. Oh, yeah. You, I've heard this kind of phrase before. I'll paraphrase it, but it more or less is saying that most generations look uh, in front of them towards their own future. They don't look behind them in terms of who's coming um, behind them. How are they laying the path? How are you creating new cultures and new opportunities and experiences? So for me, I get a lot of energy 
from seeing that these young people need that guidance. Mm -hmm. You know, I had a student once that is a phenomenal artist, but never used a drill before they came to my class. They just never used a drill. We can take these things for granted, but their mind, their capabilities is just so expansive that I said, if we put the proper tools in this person's hand, literally and metaphorically, who knows the level of things they'll contribute to our field. So seeing that so young and going like, you know, it reminds me of, and a lot of people, they're not fans of this artist. I get it. But I remember that the, maybe two or three months ago, I was on Instagram and Jeff Coons shared the picture of his school ID at the School of the Artist Institute of Chicago, mm-hmm. where I went, right? Uh-huh. And I remember telling my students, I say, you know, Jeff Coons wrote Salvador Dali and went and visited him at his hotel. Um, I think it was in New York. He tells the story, but, you know, a lot of people don't realize how long Salvador Dali lived, right? Yeah, he was true. Uh, old, old. Yeah. <laughs> he was old. And so he, he was around. And it's just, that's, you know, you get taught about these two artists, but you don't know that they sat down and he was just a young artist who was just hungry for knowledge because he wanted to be able to, to get to those spaces of greatness that he right. saw Salvador Dali in. And Salvador Dali said and spoke to him. So I said, so it's like sometimes knowing or even that Deborah Willis was is Hank Willis Thomas's mm-hmm. mother. Mm-hmm. A lot oh, of folks yeah. don't know that. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people don't know that. And she told this beautiful story once. It was tragic, but she told this beautiful story at the School of the Art Institute when I was in graduate school. She was giving a talk and she about dealing with sexism in school mm-hmm. and how she was pregnant and that she was being told by kind of more of a chauvinist teacher that she was taking up space that a good man could have inhabited. Mm. And just how she always says, not only did I deserve that space and more, but I created a better man than that person mm-hmm. who went on to be such a phenomenal artist, right? Oh, that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Hey, wide yeah, awakes in the house. Phenomenal. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and it's just, you know, and it's funny, I was thinking about that because uh, I got to meet their partner who was also, you know, Richard Hockley mm-hmm, mm-hmm. with the Whitney. With the Whitney, and, yep. And they came out to Charlotte Street and I got to meet them and they took a little picture and sent it to Hank oh. Lewis Thomas of some of these pieces that he was like, oh, he would love this. Mm-hmm. But I just think about like, you know, we're in a continuum. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And no matter where I go, in my career, I want my students to be able to look back and say, he cared. Yeah. So not only did this person care about their work and make phenomenal work, hopefully they see it that way, but they say, this person cared about me being able to flourish too. So that's really how I see it. I love that. That's, just that's beautiful. beautiful. That is beautiful. Did you yeah. always want to teach or was this kind of a newer development in your career? No, I've been teaching for 10 years. When I was 18 years old. My first job was being a TA in the Oakland Public School District. I was in college and that was my first internship. And I did that for three years. Same time, the following year, I was 19, I started working as a resident advisor. I was an RA in school. Mm -hmm. Holding it down. And I did that for three years. And, uh, you know, I worked in K through 12 on and off. I I did some mural-based projects out in Oakland and... Then later, you know, did substitute teaching. And so I, it's always kind of been there. And then I ended up being an adjunct professor. So when I tally it up, at least more than 10 years now, don't <laughs> forget, I've been so used to saying 10. Forget how old you are. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So it's been it's been going on so 13, been, 14. You've started giving back at an early age, and that's pretty impressive because I think a lot of us when we're younger, as you say, tend to focus on ourselves and uh, don't really see the broader opportunities to share what we have, even at an early age, with other people. So I think that's pretty commendable. Yeah, I had fun doing it. You know? Well, you know, I think it's you know, a- extra special that, you know, we have black male educators, especially African-American educators, because, you, you know, we have to really, really have examples like yourself so we can get to the granularity of, of, of our culture. And you allow for that, especially through your works, through your knowledge. You know, it's not just black art. You know, now I can get specific. And I, and I love that. I love that ability. So you being a teacher, what is it like, you know, not seeing other black male teachers? I know you're kind of like a pathway or a bright light, in, in, intentional or not. What is it like if you had any, any pushback as being an educator and being a black man? And being a black man educator in the arts, what's that like? Because that's like the triple crown of, of different. Mm-hmm. You know, so I know we're, I think we're about 2% of the teaching pool or something like that. I remember reading about that. As far as pushback, no. Maybe I'll frame it this way. I think that it's been an experience of seeing how much culture imbues our perspectives. Mm. I think that oftentimes we only speak about it in terms of negative attributes like bias. Yeah. And that's and that makes sense. But one of the things is is that you bring wealth and knowledge through your experiences in ways of that you've walked through the world. So you want a diverse teaching pool because it can allow not only for people that directly relate to you, maybe because they've walked your experiences but also that they can understand different dimensions of humanity. Mm. That. Say that again. Mm-hmm. Say well, that yeah, you gotta loud. Different... <laughs> <laughs> you got to understand those different dimensions of humanity. So it's just like, you know, when Deborah Willis told that story, I just remember thinking about, gosh, I just, I wanted to step into her shoes. I, was, I wonder how she felt in that moment because I've had my own negative experiences going through school where I dealt with things like racism and many other biases. Classism was a big one I experienced during school as well. But when I heard her story, I said, that's not something that would happen to me directly, right? Mm -hmm. Because of the body I inhabit. But I couldn't help but to think that that would be somebody I'd want to learn from. Somebody who persevered through that, Mm -hmm. right? And so this is what is lost when we don't understand that when we look at things like academia and maybe sometimes when we get critiques of it being so stagnant, it's because cultural development happens through response. In my opinion, we are an organism, I think, that responds to our environment and ecologies. And so when you essentially uh, sterilize it and keep it so monolithic, you lose the opportunity for there to be more depth. Well said. I love it. I love it. Well, you know, in talking about your own art, Kevin, how does the need for structure and organization in teaching affect your own art practice? Is there an effect there? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the benefits to teaching now is that, like I said, I've been doing it for so long. And when I say so long, I just mean in terms of it feels like such a big portion of my life, right? Yeah. 
when you start so young and realizing certain, you know, responsibilities, certain ways of communicating, trying your best to really work with that individual. I mean, when I was 18 and doing this kind of work, uh, you had to exercise patience. You had to understand that, like, you know, I'm helping these students who maybe in some cases are 15 or 14. Mm. You know, they're not that much younger than me. And so even if they, they're not in, interested in maybe doing the work, I have to kind of sit there and really work with them. So I think now I exercise a certain level of patience with myself. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. so like, you know, I've been meeting again, a couple of things done. And, you know, I got to make sure my students are all right. I know that because I go, this is time they're not going to get back. And so I, I tell that to myself, too, where I say, you know, there's certain things, there's certain moments like we talked about with regionalism, where there are moments of magic. And you go to New York now and Times Square doesn't look like it did in 1981. True. Right. And so you are going to miss. The, and this is this is very tricky. It's just this idea of saying. Time is important. Spend it where you think it's most needed. And so I say, other than teaching and going to the studio right now at this point in my life, I don't really need much else other than being with my family and friends. And I say, will that change? And will I need to have different dimensions later? Absolutely. But right now I'm totally happy because I said, this is the time, mm -hmm. you Great. know, it's working. Kevin, I, I got a question for you. You know, this now I'm, I'm hitting you hardcore with just straight up artist questions. I'm going to leave you alone on the professor tip for a second. You know, I love your visual displays. The, the imagery is so succinct, for one. I got to give you that. I mean, it's right to the point, like snap, crackle, pop. One of the pieces that we're bringing into the collection. You know, you got the whip, you got the baton, <laughs> and you got the jammy. It's like, bap, bap, bap. It's like, woo. And that, rips those rips so hard i mean your other piece if you're not familiar you know yeah uh so shout out to you and andrew you andrew McElby, i believe you all just had a show over at, at most bastille shout out to both what up but you know your piece there was really mad cool it it reminded me of the tommy boy logo and then you had mm -hmm. then you had the poem on there so tell us about the poem just tell the folks about the poem Oh, okay, so you're referring to the piece that you're you're gonna yep, get. Yeah, yeah. Um, talk about that. So there's a piece that I did for this most recent show. So definitely, people who haven't heard of this artist, Andrew McIlvain, he also works in foundation at Kansas City Art Institute. Phenomenal artist has a show, solo show at the Nerman Museum right now, and it's open until late October, I believe. Uh, check on that. Go see that. We are doing a series together called Threshold. And it's a traveling show. So we did the first one at Volpe's Bastille here in Kansas City. And we're working on some different locations now to try to have part two, three, and so on. In that show, I did a piece that features the silhouette of Martha the King Jr. being arrested. And this is in uh, Lee Montgomery, Alabama. And at that time, I also put on top of it these little block letters. So it's a lot of wood. It's a silhouette. In the block letters say, uh, we jazz June, we die soon. And it's kind of spray painted red and blue. It looks like a splatter, but the red and blue is, you know, kind of reminiscent of the police siren. And the phrase comes from We Real Cool, uh, a poem by Gwendolyn Brooks, a poet from Chicago. And what I really, what, what made me do that, that, that kind of connection, right, 
is I was thinking about this quote from Dr. King that said, you know, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it always curves towards justice. And I kept thinking about that, you know, so many people speak of Dr. King, but very few people focus on the fact that not only was he arrested several times, so there was a civil unrest component to his life, um, that the state is being weaponized against him, but that he was ultimately assassinated. And what does that actually say about a society that quotes him and if he's been assassinated? You know, there's a lot of correlations there with like the Roman Empire in a way, but I'll, I'll get on that at another time. <laughs> but when I was seeing that, I said, you know, the Gwendolyn Brooks poem, We Real Cool, she said she was walking by a pool hall and she saw young men playing pool in the middle of the day. I believe it was in the 70s. And she started to think, what would their lives ultimately be like? These are young black men. And what are the socio-political adversities they're up against? And so the poem starts with just saying that there are these young men playing pool at the golden shovel. And then she says, you know, this kind of cadence, but it ends with, we jazz June, we die soon. And so I kept thinking about the idea of, you know, temperance and um, death within Black men's lives, how it looms, particularly homicide is one of the top five causes of death, and how someone that's been exalted in our society so highly still suffered this same thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And so it, what does that actually say to a young person? Do you, I don't think people really think, what is a young Black boy um, who's maybe sitting in school, in elementary school like I was? being taught about Dr. King. And I remember asking what happened to him because they spoke about him so highly. His picture was always on the wall. You know, his picture was right next to Jesus, Jesus and John F. Kennedy MLK, (laughs) Jesus and John F. Kennedy, the the, the trilogy. Yeah. And so I kind of remember thinking like, you know, what happened to him? And I remember that that created obviously some kind of solemnness. Mm -hmm. It was a conversation about him dying, but thinking about how someone who could represent such peace equity and things of this nature, why would they didn't die? And those are the questions that as a child I had, and it's what informs my work oh, today. Oh, yeah. brother, that is... It's very insightful. That is beautiful. I mean, it's shine through. You, you know, you see it in the imagery, the color usage. I got to say, Kevin, your utilization and how you just throw that little flick of color in there, like the lights on the poem to reflect the police lights is just Whoa, mm-hmm. you know, we die soon. It's like, oh, you see them lights. You're like, you know, it ain't good. You know, one way or the other, the outcome ain't good. And and to be able to slip that code in there, like I said, it's like you're making a, a social video graphic for our times, you know, but you've really done it in a very beautiful manner. I, hey, brother, kudos on, on, on your practice. You have mastered it for sure. That's really kind of you to say. Thanks. Did you come from an artistic family? Or how did you yeah. get interested in art? Yeah, I have an uncle who's a visual artist from the Bay Area. His name's Milton Bowens. Mm-hmm. And um, he's a accomplished artist in his own right. My mother is one of 10 children. And he's the youngest. And so he's an uncle I was very close to uh, growing up. And he is a visual artist. So I remember being in my grandmother's house. And he would have these canvases all over the place. I actually have one of his paintings up in the house right now. Oh, fine. And yeah, so I think that's where I got my desire for text, my desire yeah. for that bright color. He has this piece in that we is hanging in the house. It's called Saint Jemima. So it's a picture of Hattie McDaniels, I believe, from Gone with the Wind. And, you know, I quoted that same picture in one of my recent pieces. But, you know, it just says Saint Jemima with her looking kind of solemn, looking kind of upward. It was like a still from her being in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. 
And then it says colored served in the rear. And it's like one of those old signs. Oh, yeah. And so, yeah, there was just something about growing up around that kind of poetry and then seeing him thrive despite so many different challenges where we came from. It made me want to do the same. Yeah. And in your family, the similar tendencies to tell a story through very straightforward and seemingly simplistic means and tools, but so effectively. So that talent clearly runs in the family. So congratulations. I appreciate it. Tell me about the wind chimes, about that sound energy. You know, of all of the facets of your work, I think that that combination of sound and aesthetic kind of like, I think part of the ka that I was mentioning earlier gets gets an added boost by your wind chimes being connected. Tell us about that because, you know, listening to your pieces out by Charter Street just hit the wind sometimes, you know, it pulls my head over and then bam, first you get the sonic call, you know, get your vibration right. Then all of a sudden you look at the image, you're like, oh, Kevin, what you doing? Tell us about that combo. Yeah, you know, so it was, as I said to you guys earlier, I went to Bema Center for Contemporary Arts, mm-hmm. and I was 25 at the time. There was a couple of things that created this series, because that was where those began. Mm-hmm. And I was out there, and I was surrounded by these nine, and I forget, I think it was 10 of us, it was nine very powerful women. They had all done, like almost every other residency under the sun. It, it was like <laughs> Bemis was the last one for them, and this was like my first major residency. So they kind of took me in as like a little brother in a way. They were like right? on a final and quest. Final quest. Yeah. Last check mark. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they had done so much and so many of them just really warm and just wonderful people. So I remember at the time, that's where I met Tanya. And I had this wonderful big studio and it was like, okay, you got two months to make stuff. And I had this image. It was a book at the time. It had George Stinney Jr., who, for those who don't know, he was the youngest person to be executed in the United States as it is formally. And he was 14 years old. He was falsely accused of murder and he was sentenced to death, the electric chair. That was carried out in Appaloosa, South Carolina in 1944. Uh, That is the silhouette I'm working with, right? And he was exonerated 70 years later by Barack Obama. So I had this image and the the image is the classic mugshot. So it's a straightforward picture of him then a side profile. And all I kept thinking about was the idea of the profiling flattening an image of a human being Mm -hmm. into just this kind of, you know, amalgamation of concepts and stereotypes. So I wanted to do something with that. I just had no idea what I exactly do. I remember hearing a wind chime while walking around and, you know, when you hear a wind chime, you know what it is. You don't have to see it. Mm -hmm. And there are very few things, I think, in terms of, you know, sonically that do this. You know, you could hear maybe a crying baby or, you you know, the recognizable sounds. And I said, there's something really powerful about that because it's both gentle and beautiful. I said, I would want to have this experience. And then when you encounter what's creating this, it is larger than you could have experienced. It's like, it's like an iceberg, right? I said, I want an iceberg so that people come upon what seems like ultimately this massive monstrosity of tragedy and beauty and wonder and all that. So that's what really started it for me. And I made my very first one out there and it was called, I Heard God Laughing. That was the title of it. Mm-hmm. came from this Persian poet, the, the term. And ultimately it was really that I work with sound and I work with that because I think it harkens to a collective memory. I think wind chimes are in the consciousness of a lot of people. It speaks to 
you know, environment. I think of the South in a lot of ways for me, but whatever it conjures, I think it's usually beauty. And then I like to give that effect back to this, this silhouette of this individual, but also speak about the terror of, of lynching and hanging. And, you know, it just so happens when John need to hang. Right. Um, so I think about that instead of looking at all these bodies of people who have died in a similar manner as something to avoid, um, hopefully this kind of monument, so to speak, of a wind chime and the hanging of these bodies can bring us back to a space of remembering that these individuals, in this case, maybe this individual and what he can represent in a more broader sense through his silhouette, they had beat humanity as we all do. And, you know, so that's kind of what the work is about. So poetic that's and beautiful. so powerful at the same beautiful. time, really just beautiful. remarkable. Kevin, that's like you, you sonically, like, you know, in Thor, when he calls up to do with the rainbow bridge, your sonic thing is the rainbow bridge. You connecting us to that moment, to those histories, to those times. Brother, I felt that. I'm feeling that. I, and now, you know, I have a better understanding of your work myself. Makes me love it even more. Makes me love it even more. Mm -hmm. You. What you got going on? Because I know you cooking. I know you over there in the studio yeah, cooking. What's I be, next? I, 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 trying. I, be, I be popping in and I see you over there. Ah, what's, what, see what the chef got on the on the grill today. What you got up for? What's <laughs> next? What is next? Well, we're working on a couple of, well, first off, me and Andrew are working pretty diligently towards threshold two. It's going to be called migration patterns. Migration patterns. And so. That's you and Andrew Migration patterns. Andrew McElvain, yeah. Okay. We're working on. He's called migration patterns. So thinking about how migration, because, you know, Andrew is a Mexican-American artist mm -hmm. and his work is rooted all within those histories, particularly the Southwest too, right, of, of America. And my work, of course, you know, we spoke about it. So we, we like to talk about these intersections because we both grew up in very similar environments and we always spoke about, you know, being two young professors, it was just really refreshing to have someone who was right there who really understood you, you know? We understood each other in a lot of different dimensions. So that's what this show came out of. And we're working on Threshold 2, and all of the work is going to deal with migration as a concept. How has that affected both of our communities and in what, in what ways, right? And so that's what we're working on right now. A lot of museum language, lots of things that we'll be uh, borrowing from that. Mm -hmm. And then other than that, I'm working on a couple of small works, and it'll, I think, evolve into a series that's thinking a lot about poetry more in depth. I've been looking at John Ashbery's poems, and I'm also looking at another poet named Bob Kaufman, who was a Black Bay Area Beats poet who's often kind of left out of the lexicon of that history. He was, you know, close friends um, with Allen Ginsberg and all that. So I, I'm really diving deeper into more specific histories and then pulling the poetics out of that. Oh, it sounds great. Well, we'll be looking forward to that. Oh, absolutely. Thanks. Absolutely looking to what the chef comes up with. Yeah. We are here, Art Moves, with Kevin yeah, Demery, got... Dr. Regina Newhand. We are cooking up in here. Regina, what you got? Well, I wanted to ask two more questions of, yes. of Kevin. You've been so forthcoming in sharing your thoughts with us and your art. And I'm just curious with this new position at the Kansas City Art Institute, Will Kansas City be lucky enough to keep you here for an extended period of time? Is that your intention? That's, that's, that's definitely my intention. I mean, my goal, my dream, hey, if Kansas City Art Institute will have me, i love to be here for the long haul. So, you know, that's always a dream. I think of young professors, if they meet a space that 
they connect with so deeply. They hope yeah. for that tenure if it's a tenure granting institution. Yeah. Yeah. I'm no different. But ultimately, just uh, being able to get up every day and love what I do the way I do, it's a gift. So they got me for the lot. I'll stay here. They're willing. Thank you. Thank you, yes, brother. We, please. We, we, we need more artists to stay here. We need more teachers to stay here. And we definitely need, you know, African-American brothers in those positions to stay here. So please, thank you. Thank you for holding it down for us. Absolutely. And then lastly, if people want to find out more about you and your art, what should they do? Where should they go? Yeah. I mean, so my website is uh, kevindemery.com, K-E-V-I-N, and then D-E-M-E-R-Y.com. Uh, um, that's where I drop the projects, but, uh, you know, I'm a millennial. So Instagram, yeah. Yeah. you know, follow handle? me. So it's at weighted. So W-E-I-G-H-T-E-D underscore by B-Y underscore gold. And that's just a play on, you know, being worth your weight in gold. Worth your weight, baby. So that's my two. I share a lot on Instagram, but yeah. And then I also just invite people through the website. Please contact me if you just want to talk about the work. Because I think sometimes, you know, there's this kind of barrier, whether or not you're interested in purchasing things or if you're in that world at all. Even if you just want to talk about art, I'm always about that. So feel free to reach out. Oh, that's so you, you heard it right there, collectors. Get in the DMs. He said get in the I DMs. Didn't <laughs> he didn't say be afraid to get in there. Get in there and say, hey, what's up? You know, reach out, talk to people, and, and cross those barriers. Kevin, it's awesome to see you out there. I admire everything that you're doing. You know, were you out I there like in a parade the other day? I saw the parade. I drove by. I was yeah. giving me a burger. Were you in that big parade? I was in the <laughs> parade. I was in the parade. Okay. So if, if people don't know, Foundation, and this is the, the brainchild of our wonderful chair, Steve Snell, uh, that we had a parade of 270, you know, foundation It, it was huge. It was huge. That's pretty amazing. It was huge. Brazilian Samba done by mm -hmm. Bird Fleming. Mm -hmm. He taught Ooh. him Brazilian Samba. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we all made these fantastic hats. And so you had old carousels on people's heads. You had beautiful imagery. And we worked on that for three weeks. And that was our way to welcome them to the school. And then now we're jumping into fall curriculum this Monday. Gosh. Well, I hope y'all keep that up. I hope y'all keep that up. That parade was, I was like, okay, look at y'all. You know, that was cool. You know, I, I, was just, I look over my, I'm, I'm heading to Wednesdays to get a burger. And I look over, look at parade. What up? Snuck a parade great. in on me. Oh, oh gosh. Well, Kevin Demery, artist and educator, I tell you, it's just been a joy speaking with you today. We've learned so much about you and you've really broadened our own perspective when we think about art and what an artist can bring to us. So thank you so much. No, thank you. I appreciate you all having me. Dwight, anything Fantastic. else? I just want to send a shout out to uh, Charlotte Street, Arts Casey, yes. and basically mm -hmm. everybody in the arts community. Yeah, yeah, we're all doing things, trying to do the best for Casey. Like Kevin said, hey, let's yeah. try to get more people to stay here. Let's try to yeah. make this the arts utopia we know it all can be. Yes, and we're yeah. all in this together. Art the great cause. Well, thanks everyone for listening and be sure to like and share this episode. We could use your help in getting the word out. We'll catch you next time with Art Moves. Thanks again for listening to Art Moves, the podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe through your favorite podcast platform or the website. You can find links for this and the video show at linktree slash art moves that's l-i-n-k-t-r dot e-e -E slash a-r-t-m-o-v-e-s 
and thanks.